Hey there, it's Michelle Pilpich. I am a registered dietitian, certified personal trainer, and your host of this podcast, Simply Intuitive. On the show, we are talking about all things intuitive eating, active living, and breaking down what's true versus what's a myth in the wellness world so that you can focus on simple and sustainable ways to actually improve your health. If you're feeling overwhelmed by all of the health information floating around and you just want to know what to do to feel your best, you're in the right place. Not only are specific tips coming your way, but you can also count on conversations that will challenge your perspective on what health really means. So I hope you'll stick around for many episodes to come, but for now, let's get into today's show. Hi, Chloe. Thanks for joining me today. Hello. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here. I'm excited to chat. This this feels like a fun, casual chat because we, we've known each other for almost a year now. Is oh my right? gosh. You're right. Yeah. Yeah. We met mm-hmm. in a mastermind group last January um, and have been in touch. Chloe is an amazing eating disorder therapist on the other side of the country in California. <laughs> other side for me. <laughs> Thank you. And has been so great to collaborate with and just get to know. Can you share a little bit more about who you are and what you do? Yeah, absolutely. So my name is Chloe Cox. I am a licensed marriage and family therapist, and I work primarily with teens, young adult women that are struggling with eating disorders, um, particularly those who are very perfectionistic, struggle with um, like high levels of anxiety, uh, tend to be overachievers, I tend to be pretty rigid about things. Those sort of problems tend to intersect and create a perfect storm for an eating disorder. So that is who I really am passionate about working with. Um, To share a little bit more about my background, I also struggled with an eating disorder um, in my late teens, early 20s. I went through the whole treatment recovery process, and that's kind of how I decided that I wanted to be a therapist and help other people um, that were struggling with the same sort of things that I went through. Um, So I find that I have a different kind of empathy for the issues because I've also experienced them myself. So yeah, I feel very fulfilled by my job. I love my clients. I love what I do. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And I love to know you. And I was talking to another therapist recently. It's so funny how like we get into fields that touch on things that relate to us. Like even if even if it's not exactly the same, you can always mm-hmm. empathize in some way of like, oh, I've shared just anxiety in that way, perfectionism in that way, food things in that way. It's it's mm-hmm. so interesting. Yeah, for sure. For sure. Yeah. I, yeah. Things. Everyone that I've talked to in this field in particular has some kind of personal connection to it. Right. I, it's very like it's a specific thing to go into and kind of like something that really tugs at your heart. If your heart's not fully in it, it might not be for you. But yeah. Right. And then when I tell people what I do, they're like, oh, I could never do that. <laughs> right. I hear that all the time. And I'm like, it's actually not as doom and gloom as you would think. I like, know. I'm like, I love it. <laughs> yeah. I find there's a lot more laughter in therapy than people realize. Oh, 100%. There are days that I am just laughing with every single client and I'm like, this is great. <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So fun. So we both talk a lot about food and we also wanted to get into exercise. Yes. And I don't even remember how exactly we were talking about this topic. There was something on Instagram, I think. And we were well, jamming I think about you post. had posted like about the gap kind of in the eating disorder recovery space where we talk a lot about food, we talk a lot about body image, and then we don't tend to talk as much about like how to renegotiate your relationship with exercise this movement and exercise is of course an important part of just like being a human and being Mm -hmm. in a body. And it's kind of a taboo topic. I find like, sometimes I feel weird even about posting like that. I did a workout or like went on a bike ride or something like that because it's so often connected with self-punishment um, compensation. And it's just a really weird gray area, but an important one to explore like as you recover. And I think you had posted about that and trying to fill that gap initially. And I was like, yes, we need to be talking about this yeah. more. <laughs> yeah. It's something, you know, I think 
maybe that is my strongest personal connection to this field because I've never had an eating disorder. But when I think about the ways that I've thought about exercise, I for sure used to want the six pack and the biceps Mm -hmm. and wanted to like look toned and all of that stuff that we hear from people. And you're right. I don't think this is talked about in recovery. It's just It's talked about early in recovery in terms of people saying, take a break from exercise. This is too much. And often that is very needed. Yes, if you're not eating enough, a break can be so helpful and so powerful. I also don't always think it's necessary for everyone. Everybody's an individual. So I kind of treat that differently with all people. But the treatment space and the recovery space tends to not talk about reintroducing it. And so... This is something I am super passionate about. I have always been involved in sports and always very active. I continue to run for fun and do strength training and yoga and all different things. Mm -hmm. Um, And like you said, it's something I never posted on Instagram for a long time because I was like, the recovery police are going to come for me and they're going to tell me I'm (laughs) triggering and blah, blah, blah. (laughs) And then I thought, well, no, I want to be someone who can show people you can do this in a healthy way. Mm -hmm. And I think when we don't have that, we end up with this extremist messaging of either like don't exercise, which like you said, that's not healthy Mm -hmm. or um, become a like fitness gym girl. And then the only content that people see is, going to the gym six days a week, taking your pre-workout, flexing in the mirror and all the things that actually can be triggering. Yeah. And isn't that the type of mentality that we're always trying to avoid in recovery is the all or nothing, the black and white, like we need to find the gray and that's pretty harmful too. Yeah. But this is a space where people are afraid to paint a picture of that, that gray area. And So yeah, I guess it was whatever I posted that sparked me to think about and tell you, have you seen, because I, I used to see this, I feel like it was a huge trend maybe like 10 years ago, um, Mm -hmm. but less so now, but I still see it where people will, influencers on social media, and I'm not thinking of anyone in particular, but just people will post about their recovery and they will show like physical body transformations from under visibly underweight to jacked and like Mm -hmm. super muscular. And there is this whole niche of the internet that is like recovery looks like becoming a fitness person to the point where you are looking visibly muscular and have this Mm -hmm. one physique. And like that is recovery is getting bigger, but only if it's muscular. Right. There's like a correct type of way to transition from your body that was your body and your eating disorder to your body when you're now suddenly nourishing yourself better. There's a proper way to look according to these, this content. I do see it still all the time Mm -hmm. where there are those like exposures of like, this is when I was really struggling and this is the way that my body looked and now I'm all better and this is how I look. And it's Mm -hmm. like, okay, I'm concerned that we're missing the core issue here because right. a lot of these people, um, and you know, I have so much compassion for it because it's really, yeah, it's easy to do when you're just trying to make changes to like find things that maybe make it feel a little bit more, I don't know, accessible. And sometimes mm-hmm. when you are starting to include more food, it makes it feel okay to do if you're channeling your energy into like going to the gym or or whatever Mm -hmm. um it can make it feel less triggering it can make it feel easier it can make it feel okay and we don't have to blame the person for that like we can blame diet culture for that um but it is it's it's concerning in the sense that it's the eating disorder kind of wearing a different hat and pretending to be (laughs) pretending to be recovery, but it's actually just another way to control your food and control your body to another another Mm -hmm. Mm extreme. Yeah, exactly. And what you said about, you know, it makes it easier to have more of the food is true. So like, okay, we can understand that mindset and it is 
still holding you back because ultimately we don't need a reason for food. Like we need food because we are alive. (laughs) Period. Yes. (laughs) Yeah. Every single day we need a full day's worth of food. And so like still creating these caveats keeps you stuck in so many ways. It's like that replacement of the unhelpful coping mechanism. And it also just perpetuates this mindset of like, nutrition is one big equation. And I, mm-hmm. I talk to clients about this a lot when people struggle with the thought of even like, okay, I'm going out to dinner and I'm going to have appetizers. So does that mean I don't need an afternoon snack or I don't need to have dessert or, yeah. and it's like, well, no, that's, it's not, like you said, black and white. It's not such a strict equation. It's so much more about the big picture and you can have a day of the snack and the appetizers and the dessert. Mm-hmm. And be fine. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. It's a lot more nuanced than that. And I think people start to see body, food, nutrition, exercise as like, like you said, this kind of equation and we stop becoming humans that live in bodies and our bodies start to become objects to manipulate. And I really see that very strongly with this pipeline of like, okay, I'm eating more and it's acceptable because I'm eating in a particular way and I'm moving my body in a particular way to achieve a particular type of body that is okay. And that just cuts yourself off from like the the knowledge that lives in our body that we could be tuning in and listening to and actually like coming to um, like a place of healing and peace with. It, it really puts you at this, um, I guess, difficult perspective of like, I can again, control my body in a, in a different way. You're not, you're not intuitively living in embodiment. You're manipulating your body again in another way that just right. separates yourself from your body and your soul even more. It's hard. Right. Mm-hmm. 100%. And then it can extend to the food. Like you were saying, it's like, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to eat more, but in a way that will help me gain muscle. And now I have to count my protein grams and I have to do X, Y, Z. And I remember also seeing that on social media where like, yes, people are eating more, but they're posting their post-workout meals. And <laughs> do you remember square bars, those protein bars that were like squares dipped in chocolate? Oh my gosh. Yes. Yes. <laughs> I remember like this particular time when everything on Instagram was like a yogurt bowl with a chopped up square bar from the girl who just went to the gym. And I'm like, just the flashbacks are like crazy. But that was the whole image of like, get your six pack, whatever. It's like, they're also promoting more food, but still in a hyper controlled way. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that's what we're like working on in recovery to try to move away from, right? Is like the idea that you need to have so much control and that you can't just trust what your body is telling you. Um, It really inhibits like that intuitive connection so hard. Um, And I hear my clients, you know, they'll come to me and I'll I'll try to gently point out when we're starting to veer in that direction. And the pushback is, is very often like, well, it's way better than it was before. Like, at least I'm yes. like eating X, Y, and Z. Like I wasn't doing that before. And it's like, yes, yes, we can hold that. We can hold that for sure as a, as a type of progress. And also like, we can't ignore that perhaps this is a way that we're also like avoiding the root issue of, Just finding that acceptance with self. Okay. So that makes me think of something because Mm -hmm. you're so right. I hear the same thing. Like, well, sure, I didn't have dessert, but I used to only have one meal and now I'm having three. And like, it's kind of this thought of like, well, when is it going to be enough? And I tell Mm -hmm. clients often, I actually think the hardest part of recovery is not the very beginning. It's that middle part where you have done a lot of work And then there's still more to do. I think that's actually the hardest part because it's been a long road and it's hard to keep pushing. And so in a situation like this where food, food control and obsession kind of transforms into an exercise focus, Mm -hmm. you know, I, I also sometimes hear, well, 
but isn't exercise healthy? Like this is good for me. I'm doing something good and healthy. And, um, you know, is it bad to eat healthy? Like, what if I just prefer, I just like working out a lot and I just like eating healthy foods. Mm-hmm. Hear that too. What do you, yep. I'm sure you do. What is your response to those, those comments? Yeah. Well, it kind of depends on like where my client finds themselves in recovery. I am. And if they can take a step back and be honest about like, where is the eating disorder living at this time? Like, is there a part of you that I guess would continue to eat these healthy foods and would continue to exercise in this way if you knew that it would not impact the way that your body looked at all? If your body would just be whatever it is and it would not have any sort of bearing on that. Like, are these still the foods that you would go to automatically? Are these still the ways that you would move your body? If you knew for sure, like your body was just going to do its thing. Um, Cause that can kind of point out like intention of why we are going to these certain foods or these certain forms of exercise. And very often my clients will be like, Ooh, like I, <laughs> I don't think so. <laughs> like, I think yeah. I might prefer to, you know, do like a gentle yoga class versus like pushing myself to do another form of exercise that feels more intense or socially acceptable as like a, I don't know, intense workout, whatever. Right. Um, It's, it's just a moment to get really honest. And so that's, that's what I try to point out where like, of course, like all foods, like we want to include all foods, the ones that are more nutritionally dense, and then also the ones that might be a little bit more fun in the same way that like we can engage with exercise intuitively where like there might be days where our body's feeling more energetic and we might want to go for a run versus you might wake up and maybe your body doesn't want to move that day. And can you allow that to be all right when you have this voice telling you that it might not be like, how can we move to that place of just being able to listen and respect our actual needs? That question about what would you do if it wouldn't change your body is such a good one. I have asked that exact question to many clients and it's it's always interesting. So I would encourage everyone listening to ask that to themselves. Like what mm-hmm. would you do if it doesn't change your body, if it didn't change your body? Because that's also the goal of recovery in general is to think about your health in terms of health and not your body and kind of do everything as if it wouldn't change your physical appearance because it can still be beneficial. And another thing I love to tell people is that exercise is helpful. Movement helps to control blood sugar and it helps with blood sugar balance. It helps with improving your A1C, which is a lab marker of your blood sugar. And so it's often recommended to people with diabetes. And many doctors will say, oh, you have diabetes? work out so you'll lose weight. But research actually shows if you add exercise into your lifestyle as someone with diabetes, you will see improvement in blood sugar control regardless of whether or not your weight changes. Mm-hmm. So like these benefits happen internally and it's not always going to change your size. We don't know what your set point weight is. Like maybe you just are built to be whatever size and shape you are. And like, that doesn't mean that you shouldn't exercise because there are plenty of non-scale wins, non-physical benefits that can come from movement that can also make you feel better about your body, even if your body doesn't change. And I think that's hard for people to grasp. Totally. And similarly from like a mental and emotional standpoint, like what's the first thing that people recommend when you're feeling depressed is like move your body. Mm -hmm. One of the primary things that therapists tend to recommend when you have anxiety is to move your body. And we know now just to what extent even trauma lives in the body and how helpful movement can be for that. And I believe the same is, is true for people struggling with eating disorders is we feel so disconnected from our body when we are in an eating disorder, movement can be such a beautiful way to bridge that gap and to find embodiment again, if we approach it in a really safe and mindful way. Um, And that has nothing to do with the way that the body is going to look because of that movement and everything to do with just healing that relationship with the body and gaining the benefits that come from a mental health perspective as well. So 
talking about those benefits, because for sure, I mean, I have felt that and I love going for a run when I'm feeling super anxious and it just gets that energy out. I would love to hear your thoughts on different types of movement for their mental health benefits, because let's say, you know, let's take anxiety as an example. Um, Mm -hmm. If somebody... I think running gets a bad rap, but I'm going to use it as an example. <laughs> like yeah. somebody is overdoing their running and they're running every day and maybe not fueling enough and it is helpful for their anxiety. And so they're saying, well, running is the only thing that helps my anxiety. I need to get that energy out. Like if I do yoga, if I do something more slow, it's not going to have the the same effect What do you think about like that kind of low intensity versus high intensity for different mental health benefits can both be helpful and how do you navigate those recommendations for people? Yeah. Yeah. And I have clients tell me this all the time as well, that like literally the only thing that works for anxiety is to go on a run. And I'm like, okay, I actually get that from like a physiological and emotional standpoint I am like when our bodies are experiencing a stress cycle, we need to find a way to release that. And very often that will come from raising our heart rate and moving the body and like shaking it out and running can really be helpful for that. And like, there's a point where it's no longer helpful. There's a point where it's detrimental and you feel like it's the only thing that works. I am, I tend to tell my clients that like, yes, let's add, let's have that be a part of your toolkit. It can't be the whole the whole right. box. <laughs> like we need other tools in the <laughs> toolbox. Um, and one of the like skills that I tend to give clients, um, it's a well-known dialectical behavioral therapy skill. It's called the TIP skill. It stands for temperature, intense exercise, uh, paced breathing, and progressive muscle relaxation. And I want to talk about specifically the I, the intense exercise piece. Because when I give that to clients, especially clients that have struggled with eating disorders, it seems like a little controversial, Yeah, <laughs> um, obviously. And so I, I have a major caveat that yeah. this is not going for a extended period time running, doing something intense. This is literally like some jumping jacks. This is like sprinting down the block and back. Like this is getting those like short spurts of energy out and limiting it to that. That's enough to elevate your heart rate. And then your body, um, it's kind of like a biohack. Your body will Mm -hmm. have that elevated heart rate. And then it's from a place of I was just moving. And so my heart rate is raised versus I am in a state of anxiety. Sometimes our bodies don't know how to regulate the anxiety, but they do know how to downregulate your heart after you've been engaging it because of the way that you're physically moving. Mm -hmm. Doing those jumping jacks is going to lower your heart rate. I am so very often when I have a client that's like, I have to run every single day or else I'm just going to explode with anxiety. I'm like, okay, I hear you. (laughs) <laughs> and like, can we take it down a notch as far as yeah. like what it is that you're doing and like how long you're going for? Are there ways that we can a- approach this anxiety that doesn't have to be, I need to run for X amount of minutes every day in order to feel okay. Um, the other piece of that, when it comes to high intensity versus low intensity, mm-hmm. I am, my clients, I often recommend yoga. I'm a yoga teacher, so I'm a little biased. Yeah, <laughs> but that was something about that. that was, <laughs> yeah, yeah, that was something that was really important to me in my recovery. Um, yeah. And a lot of times, I find when I have clients that resist, like the lower intensity, slower movements, um, there's more to the story there of why mm-hmm. that's hard for them. Uh, it's much more than just like I just don't like it or moving slow right. doesn't feel good for me. I'm sometimes slowing down can bring up a lot of, uh, I guess, discomfort for clients, mm-hmm. um, for people in general. Um, when we slow our bodies down, sometimes the mind starts to go, go over time. Thoughts, worries, things that we've been avoiding by moving really fast start to flood in. And while that might be a difficult thing to confront, uh, it could be a really important thing to confront as well. So if I find that clients are resisting, like, going out for a mindful stroll or just taking a 10 minutes to stretch because it's hard for them to sit still. That's a whole other conversation that we can unpack in therapy. Um, 
We yeah. had a lot of very similar conversations in our sessions <laughs> because, yeah, <laughs> I mean, same thing. I always, always tell my clients and anybody, yes, exercise is an amazing tool for stress, for mental health, and it cannot be your only tool. Exactly Precisely. like you said, you know, we need other things because that's just life. You know, you can't build a house with only a hammer. Like you need multiple mm -hmm. tools. Mm -hmm. And although I'm sure there's some sort of like all in one tool that exists out there that I don't know about because I'm not handy, but yeah. <laughs> for the sake of the example, just pretend. Um, and there's also the very real part of life that we get sick, we get injured, things happen to our bodies physically, and we cannot exercise sometimes. And so mm -hmm. if you're going to crumble when it's not available, then you're really not helping yourself at all. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Yeah. 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 You need to have more to go to when that is not an option for you. And right. similarly, if you're going to crumble when it's not available to you, then Perhaps like that's a different conversation to have, you know, like, why is that? Why is it so important? Why are we hanging on and clinging so hard to this one thing? I, right. And that's going to be different for everyone. And I think that relates to what you said about like where there's resistance, there's more to talk about. 1000%. I could not agree more. Mm -hmm. And that also ties back to what we were saying about um, preferences with food. If you feel like, well, I just like salad better than pizza. Like that's just what I prefer. And there's resistance to, okay, well, let's try ordering the pizza one day. Mm -hmm. If you cannot do something that's not your top preference, that means something. Like there's yes. also so much value in being able to eat the foods that we don't love because sometimes we just have to. Same way we want to have yeah. coping skills that maybe we don't love, but they work. But like we just need them sometimes because you don't always have access to every single thing. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. That's a, a, again, a conversation I have so often with my clients is yeah. like, what are you going to do? You're at a pizza party. You got to have a slice of pizza. Like it's right. not your, your preference perhaps, but there's going to be moments where you're not going to have the food that you prefer. And can we be okay with that? Like, how can we be okay with that? What does that mean if we're not? Exactly. It's, it's so important. And you can also tell that I'm going to have pizza for dinner tonight. And I'm oh my gosh, I know. Now I want pizza. <laughs> yes. Pizza is like my Friday routine. So I can't wait for that. Um, I want to talk about your, the fact that you're a yoga teacher. Yeah. Yeah. And you recently were... discovered this. And I'm I know, going and you're... to be a yoga teacher. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. So when did that happen? Where were you at in recovery? What has like your journey with yoga been like? So I guess now that I'm thinking about it, I, I've loved yoga since I was probably a kid. My mom used to have these yoga videos, like yoga zone or something like that on DVD. <laughs> and I would just put them on and do yoga as like a little eight-year-old child and that's so cute <laughs> and I don't know why <laughs> I couldn't tell you why um but I was also a dancer growing up so I was a very like movement focused child yeah. um so that was where I first started to love yoga was just doing these random like dvds as a kid and mm -hmm. Then, of course, I struggled with an eating disorder and things took a turn and I had a different relationship with movement. And unfortunately, my eating disorder kind of co-opted yoga for a while and mm -hmm. made it about my body and made it about the way that I was supposed to look and burn calories and things mm -hmm. like that. Um, so there was a period of time in my recovery where I really couldn't engage in movement and yoga was kind of taken away. Um, but I did go to a treatment center where yoga was a weekly thing that we would do. Um, and it wasn't anything intense. It wasn't anything focused at all on physique, whatnot. It was much more about breath and it was much more about pairing breath with movement and noticing the way that your body feels when you do that. And that was new for me. Um, I was doing like the really crazy vinyasa classes and like hot yoga and like all that stuff. That yoga, I thought was yeah. Exactly. Like the, the right kind of yoga or the best kind of yoga. Right. And then I started to engage in yoga from 
kind of the way that it's it was meant to be practiced, like more mm-hmm. Eastern philosophy versus the way that we've kind of like uh, transformed it in the West. Mm-hmm. Um, and it became much more of a spiritual practice for me and a way for me to get back in touch with my body in a way that I was like becoming its friend again versus using what? it as, as a tool to manipulate. Mm-hmm. Right. I'm curious, was there any resistance to that at first, especially in treatment? Because I think a lot of people, a lot of treatment centers offer yoga, which is amazing. Mm -hmm. And I think sometimes it can create this mindset of, okay, well, like there's an association with yoga is what I do when I'm being held back. And yoga is what I do when I can't exercise. And so it's not really something helpful. It's not really what I want. It can feel like second best for clients. Like did, did your perspective on it ever change to more negative temporarily? Yeah. Well, I was really quite pissed to be frank when I started (laughs) treatment because I had like just got my head, my headstand, like right before I started treatment. I was like, so stoked about that. And then suddenly I was being told that I couldn't stand on my head anymore. And like, I couldn't do all of these things that I wanted to be doing. And I was real mad about that. Um, And it did feel almost like a punishment that there were things that I knew that my body could technically do in yoga and I wasn't being allowed to do it. And that made me very angry. I went through a very angsty period in my early recovery. Uh-huh. <laughs> Many of us do. I think it's normal. Yeah, probably necessary. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And so it kind of made me mad at the whole practice and the way that you were speaking about it. Um, but I did work with a really amazing teacher at that treatment center. Um, and the more that I showed up to her classes, she she just framed it differently. I stopped thinking about it as exercise and I started thinking about it more as just a practice for my spirit and a practice for my soul. Uh, And that really changed the way that I saw it completely. It was not about me moving my body in a particular way anymore. And it was more about like kind of rediscovering myself. Um, And that's something that I felt that I had lost when I was in my eating disorder. I did not know who I was anymore. The career I was supposed to be going down was no longer accessible to me. Like my whole life had just changed. And those classes I kind of use to reconnect to like, what do I actually want? And can I listen to my body? And can my body maybe inform that? Can my breath inform that? Um, I started to just, I guess, look at my life in a different way. And yoga was no longer exercise. It was Mm -hmm. like a practice for my mind, body and soul to kind of come together and like have a meeting. Um, And that's how I've tried to approach my practice since then. And that's sort of what led me down um, the road to becoming a yoga teacher and doing yoga teacher training. Um, and that was maybe five years out from my treatment experience that I did that. Okay. Wow. So in between then, were you consistent with a practice post-treatment before you did the training? Yeah, I was. Yeah. So I, I found a studio, very important to find a good studio that does not have mirrors. That's like my number one yeah. recommendation. I <laughs> am. Um, the mirror thing is, is never fun in yoga, but I found a great studio. I found some really amazing teachers that continue to inspire me. And I was pretty consistent with the practice. Um, but I also like had moments as recovery goes up and down where like my treatment team would tell me like, yo, you're going like every day, like (laughs) (laughs) what's going on here. And like, I would have to check in with myself and say like, okay, Um, Is this starting to go down the path of me using yoga in a way that's going to be stolen by my eating disorder again? Mm -hmm. Um, And lucky that I had that team to keep me on track um, Mm -hmm. because they could see some of those things before I even could, which was really helpful. But yeah, I stayed pretty consistent with the practice and it got to a point where like I was graduating college and I knew I wanted to become a therapist, but I also knew I had this passion for yoga and kind of had a vision of one day bringing the two together. And that's mm-hmm. sort of before I went to grad school is when I did my training. Um, yeah. And so how was it doing the training and being in an experience that is kind of more intense physically and emotionally and mentally and spiritually, but, um, you know, going for that, because I think that's something that can be scary for people in recovery and whatever their activity might be. Maybe it's I want to run a marathon, but can I do that if I've overdone it in the past? Can I do a a teacher training that is going to be very structured and intense 
if I have been intense for the wrong reasons in the past? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a really great question. I'm, and something that I try to help my clients kind of find the balance mm-hmm. in is just, I, I would try to check in with myself. And that's the great thing about yoga is that it can always be modified to yeah. whatever intensity, lack of intensity, you know, whatever level that you are, are ready to go to at that moment. And while we were doing yoga every day, um, the program that I went to was really wonderful in the sense that it was not, um, it, it really pushed the intuitive side, I think, more than anything else. Amazing. Um, yeah. So, you know, of course we had our structured schedule and I'm a person that loves structure. So that felt really great to me. Um, but I also made sure that number one, I was fueling myself well every day. Um, and also just being honest with myself that like I, I did not always need to be the best in the class. That was something that, you know, my eating disorder loved to tell me was that I always had to do the most and be the best. Um, And I really had to rein that in and get real with myself when I was pushing myself for the wrong reasons. Um, It was, it was a challenge, I think at times, because I I do, as many of my clients uh, come to me with these same issues, I Mm -hmm. tend to be an overachiever. And so I would compare myself to others and, and, try to be doing all the hardest variations of things. And I would take my moment in meditation at the end of the class to kind of reflect on like, all right, how, how did that go from a mind, body, spirit perspective? Like, was I being in tune with my body as the primary goal here? Um, Cause that's always what I, I strive to do is like, listen first and foremost to what my body needs um, and just be real when my brain kind of gets the better of me and pushes me to do things beyond what maybe was the best for me in that moment. Mm-hmm. So the process of checking in is the I short. I relate. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that like high achiever, perfectionist mindset. I so relate. And I mean, I have loved yoga since I don't know high school, middle school. Like I've never really been consistent with it, but always enjoy it so much. And I. So I'm not like amazing in the sense of like, I can do handstands and I can do all these crazy things. Mm -hmm. And that's really not what it's about. But just as someone who like is naturally flexible, when I would go to classes previously, I'd be like, oh, I'm like the best one here and I don't even have to try that hard. And it was such a weird like ego boost thing. But I'm like, that's so not helpful. (laughs) No, I can totally relate to that. And I've had like teachers in the past and I try to do this in my class as well that like will call out like, hey, notice if your ego is entering the room as we're heading into this variation. Like, yeah, you do not need to be doing the most. You do not need to be the best. That's not Mm -hmm. what it's about at all. Like it's such a personal practice. And of course, you can practice in a group, in a community, but just calling yourself out is like a part of the practice of yoga is just noticing when your ego enters the space. Yeah, 100%. And I luckily have become much better at that, which like it makes it more enjoyable. And it just, I mean, like you're saying, it makes you more connected to yourself, more embodied, more everything. Like you don't think about other people as much when you're Mm -hmm. no longer trying to compete with them. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. That's one of my favorite things about yoga is it's kind of a microcosm for life. So like we're going through the practice, you are, you know, starting with your breath, you're starting with the sun salutations, whatever it is. There are moments where things might get a little bit more intense. There are moments where you can learn to ease off. Like you're really mindful of the thoughts that are coming up. You're mindful of when your ego is entering the space. You're mindful of just the experience of being in your body. Um, It's, it's something you can take with you off the mat. Like that, that sort of frame of mind, um, especially in eating disorder recovery, just being able to notice like, okay, that was a moment of like some really harsh criticism for my body, or that was a moment where I was rigidly controlling and not judging it and not shaming yourself for it, but just being able to notice it and then kind of course correct or do what you need to do to get back to the path that serves you best. Right. So beautifully said yeah, and I've I've been to classes where teachers are like, "Oh, the the real yoga is your life," and I'm like, "Yeah, wow, wow interesting. <laughs> I have a lot to learn. I'm excited for the whole training." But 
I yeah, can't wait to hear about it. Yeah. I'm so excited. And yours was in Bali, right? Yeah, it was. Yeah. It was yeah, so cool. It was like a month or so in Bali. I yeah. loved it. You are going to love it. I can't wait. Yeah. Incredible. And I also have this vision of like, how will that integrate with my business and everything? And yeah, the the nutrition. Did you ever get into any mindsets or rules, I'll say rules about nutrition because a vegan lifestyle can be very integrated with yoga, can be something that some people really push as like, this is what you need to do. So was that ever a challenge? Yeah, actually, yes, 100% mm-hmm. it was. And I I mean, I will be honest and say that I'm a vegetarian. Mm-hmm. Um, and that is another uh, like nuanced conversation to have in the recovery space. Yeah. Um, I grew up in a family where that was a thing. So for me, it like has always kind of been a part of my story. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, my mother's a vegetarian, my sister's a vegetarian. It's kind of a part of our family culture. Um, but that is definitely an agenda that was pushed very heavily wow. <laughs> in the yoga space. Um, yeah. And, you know, from, from some really beautiful sources of like nonviolence and ahimsa and like, wanting to uh, think about animal rights and the environment, which is like lovely, beautiful, gorgeous intentions. Right. But we also have to, we have to understand the nuance of someone that has might like myself an eating disorder history and where any sort of restriction can ignite that again. Um, mm-hmm. And kind of weighing the costs and benefits on a personal level of like, of course I want to support nonviolence and nonviolence towards animals and, a happy mm-hmm. planet, but also is cutting out dairy products and eggs and all animal sourced stuff, for lack of a better word. Yeah. Um, what's that doing to me in the way that I can show up in the world? And is that right. like my eating disorder again showing up with a new hat that's called right. veganism now? Um, and then, so that like, is definitely hard to navigate. Yeah. And, and then it's a question of like, well, how good of an advocate can you even be if you're not taking care of yourself? And if you mm-hmm. do slip into an eating disorder, like, sure, you can tell yourself you're doing it for the right reasons, but you can't even promote those reasons if you are not your best self. Mm-hmm. Exactly, exactly. And that's something just in in my own journey with, you know, I'm being a vegetarian, something that I continue to check in with myself about is like, mm-hmm why am I not choosing to eat this? Like, where is that coming from? Is this right. restriction? Um, and can I continue to show up like in my integrity and in my value system? Wow. Yeah. And how does it feel? Like, does it feel like a sense of lack or does it feel empowering? And what you mm-hmm. said about, you know, it being such a part of your family, that's one of the first questions I ask people because totally. I fully believe that people can be vegetarian in recovery, vegan in recovery, whatever you want. Mm-hmm when it's coming from the right places and a lot of a lot of different um communities can promote their own way of eating that sometimes is helpful and sometimes is not so whether it's veganism right. or whether like the gym people are telling you that you have to be paleo and eat as much protein as possible like mm-hmm. that can become so disordered too and so and I personally think that's for a little bit less like ethical reasons than the veganism thing, but like you can, when you're in a community that is so the same and so focused on the same thing, it's so easy to be pulled into something that maybe is not the best behavior for you. Mm. Or maybe it is like only you and your team, hopefully you have a team. No. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And luckily like that was something that I, I could navigate alongside my team and in the same ways that they would keep me in check as far as exercise, they would keep me in check as far as like, okay, Chloe, like, are you veering down this like vegan road because you actually are behind these issues? And this is like a, a cultural um, sort of thing that you want to support or like, is this your eating disorder restricting and making you feel a little bit more safe with the foods that you're choosing to eat? And that was the case. So I like had to (laughs) call myself out and veer away from that and return to something that allowed me to like have more variety and freedom in my food choices. It's all about just getting honest and real. And I think at the end of the day, like if 
you are truly honest with yourself, you can you can pick up on when it's your eating disorder running the show and whether it's it's actually good for you at your core. Um, yes. And sometimes that's an incredibly hard thing to admit. But I will say when I broach that with my clients, most of them are able to to identify it. Yeah. I mean, I, I see the same thing. I will often, you know, ask prompt clients, ask them a question and they say, I don't know. And I'm like, you know, you do you know, know. <laughs> yeah. you really know, you know what you ultimately want. You wouldn't be here if you didn't want recovery on some level. Like, mm-hmm. yeah, it just takes quieting everything else, mm-hmm. which is yeah. hard. It's very hard and it, it can make you feel very vulnerable. And then you have mm-hmm. to confront a lot. A lot of, um, I guess, the underlying things that maybe you didn't have to confront when you were yeah. hiding behind whatever behavior that you're clinging on to. So let's maybe think about some top tips for people who feel like they don't know what to make of their relationship with exercise. They don't know how to navigate that. Um, I personally think the most important thing is to unfollow the fitness influencers and yes, number one. social media, like only be following people who send a message that you feel empowered by and you're not comparing to. And if mm-hmm. they are body checking in the mirror in every single video, that is a red flag. <laughs> yeah. Highly, highly uh, red flaggy. That yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, I would say on top of that, when you're curating your social media, include all bodies, include all bodies and all forms of movement. Um, If you're noticing that the only people that you're following are looking a particular way or engaging in movement in a particular way, see if you can find people that inspire you in other ways and include that body diversity as examples of, you know, all bodies are good bodies. All bodies can engage in movement um, in a a healthy and supportive way. Um, So add that. Yeah, I think there's this fear of seeing larger bodies. You know, people think they need to surround themselves with like what's going to motivate them and will I have to see only my dream body because that'll motivate me to get it. And you used to hear the advice of like uh, cut out photos of like Victoria's Secret models and post them on your fridge that you don't need or that like toxic stuff from the 90s or 2000s, whatever. Mm -hmm. And that doesn't work. Like that's not what motivates us. And looking at a body size different from yours is not going to transform your body into that size. No, no. That's like a breeding ground for, for shame and for feeling inadequate. And like that actually fuels eating disorders so much more. Like it's just not, not the vibe. Mm-hmm. And people think like, oh, well, if I look at normal bodies, then I'm going to like be too easy on myself. I'm going to let myself go and I'm not going to care about these things. But it's more about everything you said, tuning in internally. That's like what intuitive eating is all about, mm-hmm. connecting to your body and what feels good internally, which will lead you to feeling strong and feeling healthy. Like we all want yeah. those positive feelings. We want to feel strong. We want to feel capable. We want to feel energized. And so mm-hmm. intuitively you will move towards that. And also like we have, we all have a set point. And so mm-hmm. you're not going to su- suddenly let yourself go and become some size that is vastly different from where you are in a heartbeat, just because you're looking at a whole range of body sizes. Right, right. All that is going to do is like open your mind to the fact that all bodies exist and all bodies are acceptable and okay. Like your body can take any form that it's meant to take and it is just as deserving and it is just as worthy and you can engage in movement no matter what body size you are in. Of course, that is a privilege. It is a privilege to be able to live in a body that can engage in movement, I will say. But exposing yourself to like the diverse range of bodies is not going to change your body. It's just going to help you accept your body in whatever form it naturally comes in. Right. And accept others because it's all related. You know, when you're like judging others, it's a reflection of how you look at yourself. And yeah, it just helps. Mm -hmm. It helps. Yeah. 
Another tip that I would give um, and that I do give my clients is like, if you are just tiptoeing into incorporating movement again after a period of like taking a step back, you're in early recovery, you've had a toxic relationship with it in the past, check in with yourself before you decide to move in any type of way and ask yourself, why am I doing this? What would feel good to do? And again, that question of like, if this wouldn't change my body at all, like, is this what I would choose to do today? Okay, I love that. And I'm going to add on to it because I give my clients a five-point check-in for whether or not it is a day to move or a rest day. And I tell them, ask yourself five different questions. Am I nourished? Am I hydrated? Mm -hmm. Am I rested? Am I sick or injured? And am I stressed? Because physically you need to be in the right space. If you haven't eaten enough, if you're dehydrated, if you are not sleeping, like no, there is already stress on your body. You don't need to add the stress of exercise. It's typically a positive stress, but it becomes negative if there are other stressors going on. So those are the physical checkpoints. And then I love that you have those mental checkpoints as well. I love that. I'm going to steal your five. That's amazing. Yeah, please. (laughs) Yes. I love to give those out. So hopefully that's helpful. I think we can leave people with these tips. This time flew by. It did. I can't believe it's been almost an hour already. And that I'm like, why do I have other things to do? Bummer. Um, So we wrapped up with those tips and I would also add a tip, work with a dietitian, work with a therapist, find a team to help you with your relationship with food and movement. And you and I both love to do these things. So can you share how people can find you if they want more from Chloe Cox? Yes, I am on Instagram uh, at Chloe Cox Therapy. My website is chloecoxtherapy.com. And I also am expanding into a group practice and I have a lovely um, new therapist. Her name is Brittany Hitt. She's working underneath me. And if you'd like to work with her, you can find us at socalwellnessgroup.co, not .com, .co. Um, (laughs) And (laughs) I know it's confusing. Um, Yeah, I would love to see you all on Instagram. Um, I show up there semi-consistently. Yeah, and if you'd like to work with me, I'm licensed in California. Amazing. I will link everything in the show notes. I will also have links to myself to work with me, to book an intro call if you want to talk about working on nutrition and all of Chloe's links to socials and her practice and everything. So check that out if it would be helpful. Otherwise, thank you, Chloe, for coming on for this chat. Thanks for having me. This is so much fun. And there you have it. That is our show for today. I hope you enjoyed it and had some good takeaways. If you did, I would love to hear what's resonating for you. Send me a DM on Instagram or share the episode to your stories and tag me so that I can see that you're listening and hopefully loving it. You can also share this episode with a friend who you think would enjoy it and spread some intuitive eating love to everyone around you. As always, five-star ratings and reviews are so appreciated, so you can drop me one of those. Be sure to also check out the show notes for all the links that I mentioned and more information on myself and my nutrition private practice. Other than all that, I hope you have a great day and a great week, and I will catch you in the next episode.